What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the planet today. Today is Friday, February 11th, 2022. I'm your host, Matt Norton, here once again with our producer and co-host, Nick Janusa. Nick, how's it going, buddy? Matty, it is going well over here, my dude. We are almost halfway through February, and that is a milestone that I like. That's wild. Because it's the worst month on record. It is not the worst month on record because my birthday (laughs) (laughs) and my dad's birthday and Valentine's Day which also means Galentine's Day, which also means Palentine's Day. <laughs> it's a day for all of your friends and loved ones, and you're trying to take that away from us. Hey, you know what? Groundhog Day, besides being your birthday, is a BS holiday. I'm going to say it outright. Punxsutawney Phil, come after me, dude. <laughs> Are you into the Staten Island uh, uh, Groundhog or whatever it is? That's way better. Yeah, that's like a, it's basically like an episode of Side Talk, if you've ever seen that before. <laughs> I haven't, but I'm also a Punxsutawney Phil guy, so we are at <laughs> odds to start off this show. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Maybe we'll agree on, on some other shit later on in the episode, so it'll all even out. I certainly hope so, but uh, yeah, let's get into it. <laughs> Welcome to the planet today. Here on TPT, we cover the latest in climate change, wildlife conservation, renewable energy, and environmental policy with two episodes every week coming your way Monday and Friday. This show is your one-stop shop for all things environmental, whether you're just diving into a green lifestyle or you're ready for some more involved conversations about what can be some complex topics. TPT has a little bit for everyone, so we are happy to have you as a listener. Yeah, and like we say every week, go rate the show on Apple and Spotify as well. If you've done it already, great. Do it again. If you haven't, please do it. And write a review on Apple Podcasts while you're at it. You have, I say this all the time, but you have a 100% chance of getting on this show if you write us a review on Apple Podcasts. It's a guarantee. It's an absolute guarantee. I think we have a couple reviews since the last time we read, so maybe we'll start bringing that back next week. Yeah. Let's get some of those people back. All right. Let's get into our quick hits. So the first one is by Severin Carroll of The Guardian, who writes, Scotland hopes to save wild salmon by planting millions of trees next to rivers. So the idea is to protect the wild salmon from the effects of climate change related heating by planting trees along the edge of the water. Salmon are vulnerable to changes in water temperature, and Scottish scientists have found that rivers and burns in the Scottish highlands and uplands are too warm in the summer for wild salmon. There are cold water species who can't survive in temperatures of 33 degrees Celsius or higher. One of the most famous salmon fishing rivers, the River Dee, has already seen 250,000 saplings planted along its tributaries. And for those of you wondering, yes, the trees will all be native plants. Only 35% of Scotland's rivers have adequate tree cover, which along with rising river temperatures, make it hard for salmon to survive. So essentially the trees will allow the water temperature to be more moderate then? Yeah, they're going to be providing shade, keep those temperatures cool, and keep it a nice, balmy 33 degrees Celsius or lower for the salmon. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and 33 degrees Celsius is 91 degrees Fahrenheit for anyone who is 
who's wondering. So that's pretty hot. Yeah. So it's, it's basically like you're taking a warm bath and that's not going to be good for salmon. Yeah. So the tree cover itself is going to provide shade and it's going to keep rivers at a more salmon appropriate temperature, like we mentioned, but those trees will also have some protection from deer as many of the trees will have fences around them. Personally, I'm happy to see some proactive measures being taken to protect the salmon protectors. One potential issue that climate forecasts suggest is that water temperatures will continue to climb even if global temperature rise is limited to 1.5 degrees Celsius. Lorraine Hawkins, who's the river director for the D-District Salmon Fishery Board, which is a statutory body, said, The rivers and burns are the nursery grounds for young fish, and it's the young fish which will be affected by summer temperatures. Their feeding and growth rates are affected. If it gets hotter, we will see fish dying. Salmon population decline has been attributed to climate change, food availability, which is also impacted by climate change, obstructions in the river, rising seal populations, which are a predator of salmon, bycatch in commercial shipping, and poor river quality. I think it's also pretty cool for just the scenery of the rivers. Like, There's something to me that's honestly just perfect about laying down in the shade next to a river and listening to the water flowing. So look, I hope this works out well in cooling the rivers for the salmon and also for people who might just want to hike or walk or relax near these rivers. Matt, I am totally in agreement with you. There's, there's nothing like that. I think I'm a pretty huge river guy and I don't want to go out on a limb, but I'm going to say that I would take rivers over lakes. I think so too. I mean, something about just the the serene sound of the river flowing. It's, it's peaceful, but it's also so strong and cool. Like you get rivers with rapids. And yeah, exactly. I don't know. There's so much to offer. I'll take moving water over stagnant water all day. Call this guy Rivers Cuomo. Shout out Weezer. <laughs> <laughs> all right. This next one up is from BBC where their climate change team writes Mount Everest. Mountain's highest glacier melting rapidly. New study shows. Very timely story after Monday's documentary review about glacial melt. And if you haven't already, go check out The Last Ice on Disney Plus and listen to our review of it from Monday. Researchers from the University of Maine found that climate change has caused the highest glacier on Mount Everest to lose 180 feet of thickness over the last 25 years. The glacier is roughly 26,000 feet above sea level and is thinning 80 times faster than it first took the ice to form, meaning that in the last 25 years, we have lost what took 2,000 years of freezing to produce. Dr. Marius Pataki, who is one of the lead researchers here, said that the glacier may already be, quote, a relic from an older, colder time. The decline can be blamed on both warming temperatures and strong wind, resulting in erosion of the glacier. There's also not really been one single event that has caused the region's climate to melt the glacier. Instead, it's just been consistently warming temperatures that are causing this. Yeah, and it should be almost more scary that it wasn't like one singular thing that happened that, that made it melt. It's just crazy that, you know, how fast warming temperatures can erase the work of 2,000 years, basically, in, in just 25 years. Yeah, that's a good point. It kind of reminds me of climbing up a ladder where, you know, you go up four or five steps, and then you slip. You go down a lot quicker than it took you to get up those four or five steps. So, yeah, yeah it's the same kind of deal where it just quickly offsets a lot of hard work. Yeah, seriously. And this also has pretty big implications for the people of the Himalayas as around one billion people depend on the mountain range for their drinking water. 
So if this glacier and others in the region melt, it could become much harder for those people to get clean water. This could also make it more difficult for climbers to summit Mount Everest as well, since melting glaciers could result in more exposed bedrock and ice cover. This isn't really an all hope is lost kind of thing, so we wanted to end this one with a quote from Dr. Tom Matthews, and he says that the South Cal Glacier is very small in the grand scheme of things, and that this is more important for figuring out how it applies to ice around the world. Yeah, and and how it applies to you know the people that are in those those climate impacted areas, especially like we talked about last week with, with the last ice, um, or sorry on Monday, but yeah, I mean, this is going to make it more difficult for climbers, but also treacherous too, you know? Yeah. And people aren't going to stop trying to summit Mount Everest. Like that's, that's a bucket list item for many climbers. So it's just going to get more and more dangerous, unfortunately. Yeah. It's going to happen. All right. So our next one up is from CNBC where Katie Brigham writes, how the fossil fuel industry is pushing plastics on the world. With oil and gas companies probably seeing the writing on the wall for the future of their industry, they can continue to make money with one of two strategies. Number one, embracing the idea of being an energy company and transitioning to renewables, or two, find a new use for the fossil fuels that they've been extracting. Judith Enk, founder and president of Beyond Plastics, says plastics is the plan B for the fossil fuel industry. The International Energy Agency estimates that plastics will make up nearly half of the oil demand growth by 2050, which is a faster growth rate than aviation and shipping, which the IEA says are both difficult to decarbonize. CEO of No Plastic Waste, Ramesh Ramachadran, says that every company who's currently producing plastic has plans to expand this production in the next two or three years. So just how much plastic is forecasted to be produced in the future? Wood McKenzie's Alan Gelder says that every year through 2050, there will be 10 million metric tons of growth for petrochemicals, which are used to make plastics. The main driver behind this is Middle Eastern oil producing countries and the United States exporting plastic feedstocks and polymers. Asia and specifically China are the biggest importers of these plastics. Yeah. And crazy stat, only 9% of plastic ever made has been recycled. Yeah. That is a wildly low number. Like for all the plastic that is actually, you know, put into recycling bins or plastic that's been collected, only 9% of that, like it's it's got to feel like we're really not doing much in terms of helping the planet if only 9% of it, 9% of the plastic is is actually reproduced. Yeah. And that that kind of brought me to a different question like why? Like, why is the plastic not actually being reproduced? And so I kind of looked into it a little bit more and you can't recycle dirty plastic. Right. So like anything that has, you know, let's say you get like a pizza box, right? And it's got like a little bit of pizza sauce still left in it, right? That cannot be used. Any food residue on the the plastic material will not be able to uh, be used. Yeah. And that's the same with, you know, recycling bottles of iced tea or something where you have to rinse them out and make sure that there's strictly a little bit of water that's going to dry up in transportation or something. You can't have anything else in there. And that's something that I feel like a lot of people don't realize. And unfortunately, one contaminated item is going to contaminate that entire crop of collected recyclable plastics. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know, it's always been cheaper to make new plastics than to recycle it, which is where money and morals are at odds. And unfortunately, a lot of the time, 
your bottom line is going to win out when you're making these decisions. So plastics have continued to be both profitable and prominent in pretty much every single aspect of supply, which is something that we talked to Ryan about last month, uh, Ryan Godolphin, about the exact plastic issue and why they're so prevalent. Yeah, for sure. And a recent Ipsos survey of over 19,000 people found that 71% of people support banning single-use plastics worldwide. What's funny is that Nick and I were not two of the 19,000 people here, but make that number 19,002, because I think we both agree single-use plastics, (laughs) not worth it. We're both big aluminum and reusable bottle guys, so. Yeah, or even just like get a plastic bottle that's reusable. I don't know, like that's at least better than just get like continuously buying water bottles over and over and over again. For sure, like that's one of the things that Ryan brought up in the interview last month. He said the best thing you can do if you're gonna buy a single use plastic is rinse it out and use it again because you're extending that anticipated life cycle and kind of breaking up that chain. Exactly. And it's just, it's a steamroll effect. If, if everyone else starts doing that, well, now we've got, you know, one more life cycle out of, that was not predicted, like you just mentioned. So definitely huge. So another big issue is where plastics are being produced. Petrochemical expansion is mostly happening in low income communities and communities of color in Texas, Louisiana, Ohio, and Pennsylvania. So this also becomes an environmental justice issue. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's crazy. And this goes back to one of the episodes we did about the the Susquehanna County in Pennsylvania thing, these oil companies target these lower income communities and basically exploit them for, you know, whatever it is, gas, oil. Yeah, it's a tale as old as time, unfortunately. Like people in power and corporations in power are going to continue to do this until they can't anymore. But a silver lining here is that the plastic segment of oil and gas production is much smaller than using it for energy. Only 13% of ExxonMobil and 6.5% of Shell's revenues, respectively, came from plastics in 2020. So increased demand alone won't be able to sustain the fossil fuel industry, but we figured this would be something important for our listeners to hear. Yeah, definitely. And another point I want to just bring up for, for our listeners is that glass and metal can be recycled infinitely. So definitely go to those two containers if you can choose over, over plastic. Um, I, I mean, the reason obviously that everyone is making plastics is that it's easier to transport, it's cheaper, all that stuff. But for us as consumers, it's important that we make the switch to glass metal or reusing plastics, like we mentioned before. Yeah. Money talks and we have an opportunity here to uh, make our voices heard through our purchases. Yeah, exactly. And with that, we're going to take a quick break. Today is brought to you by Vala Alta. Vala Alta's everyday handkerchief is a high-performance daily-use handkerchief designed to help minimize your impact. Made in the United States from sustainably sourced Irish linen, capturing the material's historic craftsmanship and natural antimicrobial properties, handkerchiefs perfectly balance softness with durability and absorbency with rapid drying. Ideal for functional use in all settings, from the outdoors to routine encounters, their small and lightweight design makes one a must-carry for wherever life takes you. Build your own bundles from limited edition colors at valalta.co and save 15% with code TP15. 
APT at checkout. That's V-A-L-A-A-L-T-A dot co and code TPT. Welcome back to the planet today, folks. Our next quick hit is by Carolyn Grambling of Science News, and she writes, Satellites have located the world's methane ultra emitters. Scientists used satellite imagery from 2019 and 2020 to realize that a small number of methane emitters in the oil and gas industry contribute up to 12% of the annual greenhouse gas emissions. A majority of the 1,800 biggest methane sources come from six countries, Turkmenistan, Russia, the United States, Iran, Kazakhstan, and Algeria. All six are also major oil and gas producers. If the leaks related to this production were plugged, it would save billions of dollars and reduce emissions. For reference, 25 metric tons of methane emissions are produced every hour from these ultra emitters. Wow, that's insane. Yeah, the study found that along with the cost you mentioned before, methane leaks estimate to 8 to 12% of total methane emissions. So stopping big methane leaks would be as beneficial as removing 20 million vehicles from the road for a year. Yeah, it's substantial. Like, it's a wild statistic, but then again, methane warms the atmosphere about 80 times as much as carbon dioxide does. So in that regard, it makes sense. The trade-off is that methane lasts in the atmosphere for only 10 to 20 years compared to hundreds of years with carbon dioxide, but that methane will break down and decay and turn into carbon dioxide. So yeah, it's like one is very damaging over a century, Right. one is extremely damaging over a decade, so what's worse? Is it even worth debating or should we just switch to renewables and go carbon free? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like they're both doing massive amounts of harm. So what's the point of, of A and being them, you know? Yeah. It's like six of one, half dozen of the other. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's funny for me because I always associate methane with factory farming and carbon dioxide with fossil fuels. So sometimes it's easy for me to forget that fossil fuel production also emits a lot of methane. The report emphasizes how important the global methane pledge from COP26 was, where the countries that signed it, which was November of 2021, agreed to reduce global methane emissions by 30% compared to 2020 levels by the end of this decade. This report not only highlights how much is lost to methane leaks, how much that costs, which is important to getting some people on board with any sort of reductions, but most importantly, this shows which countries need to step their game up the most when it comes to these reductions. So Next year at COP27, if there's another global methane pledge, we know to expect more out of these six countries, which are contributing way more methane into the atmosphere than every other major player. Yeah, seriously. I mean, 12% of all annual greenhouse gas emissions, that is substantial, especially for just six sources of or six producers, you know? Yeah, it's almost like uh, oil and gas are, are dirty. <laughs> And our last one for the week is titled Around 90% of newly built homes erected last year in the Netherlands are gas-free by Emiliano Bellini of PV Magazine. Yes, yeah, so to be more specific, 90.1% of new buildings in the Dutch national and regional power networks are not connected to the gas network. 
This is actually an improvement from the year before when roughly 87% of new homes were gasless. Netbeer Nederland said that more and more households are switching to all electric as a sustainable alternative. The remaining 10% of homes were awarded their environmental permit before July of 2018, or they're located in areas where power coming from something other than natural gas is still technically impossible. So look, I mean, it's not like it's 90% and they're being lazy about that last 10. So who knows? I mean, maybe in the future, they'll be able to get to 100%, which would be really, really exciting. The association said that nearly 3,000 homes per week will have to be made more sustainably by the end of the decade to hit the Netherlands climate targets. Yeah, I mean, this is this is awesome. 90% is is a pretty substantial number. Hopefully this can serve as a, a precedent for, for other countries and you know, even for the bigger countries, we could we can probably learn something from them as well. Yeah. And the thing for me is that even if these houses that are switching to all electric aren't 100 percent renewable yet, it's a lot easier to interconnect more solar wind energy than it is to totally remove a gas line from existing houses once they're able to go 100 percent renewable. So this is a nice proactive step. Yeah, definitely. And when we talked about New York City pledging to do this within the next few years, uh, a few weeks ago, I forget which episode it was, but um Something that was criticized about that decision, and I don't know if we brought it up, a lot of people were saying, all right, this is good, but we can do it so much sooner. And this story here about the Netherlands kind of emphasized that for me because they're already phasing gas out of new buildings entirely. So let's hope that, like you said, more countries and maybe even more cities in the US or more regions begin to do the same. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, it's good that we're holding ourselves to a, a higher standard and that people are kind of calling out the, the New York City and, and the U.S. in general for not being, you know, as proactive as we probably could have been um, in, in phasing out gas. But nonetheless, like you said, hopefully it can just serve as a as a precedent builder. Yeah. And, and that's just science for you. Like, it's cool. It's good. It's part of this exciting experiment. And then some new development comes along. So you you jump to that one. So. Look, it was good when New York City said that they were going to go gasless by, I think it was 2026 and 2027 for different buildings. And that was exciting until you found out that the Netherlands is pretty much doing that right now and basically did it last year, too. So, yeah, look, let's keep holding people accountable and say we can do more. And just because we have some good news, let's keep working to make it great. Yeah, seriously. And this was some great news from our Dutch friends to send you on your way this week. So that'll do it for today's episode of TPT. Nick and I will be back on Monday for a very interesting discussion coming out of Europe. Yes, we will be talking about the European Union's proposal to call nuclear and natural gas green energy sources. In the meantime, you can share the show with friends or talk to us on social media, you know, engage with us, help the show a little bit. Please give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and leave a review for the show on Apple. The Planet Today is written and hosted by me, Matt Norden. You can follow me on Twitter at Matt Norden. We are co-hosted and produced by the best producer in the game, Nick Chinusa, who also does the music for every show. Nick, where can our listeners keep up with you? You can hear more from me at soundcloud.com slash budlincape, and that is B-U-D-L-Y-N-C-A-P-E. Go check me out. You can keep up with the entire TPT team on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at Planet Today Pod, or email us at planettodaypod at gmail.com. Make sure to follow our socials for an exclusive quick hit every week that we do not talk about on the show. Our logo was made by Kaylee Veets. Have a great weekend, everyone, and we will catch you right here on Monday. Peace!